Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Techspansive. I'm Sean Duberback from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. This week, Apple put out uh, some news in a uh, kind of different way than they normally do. Some pre-news. Uh, yeah, some pre-news. Mm. They, they announced via press release that they would be em- empowering businesses to accept contactless payments through tap to pay on iPhone. Uh, typically, when Apple announces news like this, they release the, the service right then, or, or at least announce when it will be available. Uh, this, they simply said that it will become available later this year. Um, so there was clearly some motivation to getting in front of, of this and wanting to let people know that the feature was coming and that they would have it available soon. Yeah, this I, I think is uh, could could become a, a very significant uh, feature. Uh, Apple acquired a company a little bit ago that enables smartphones to essentially act as payment terminals. Uh, so we actually saw this feature implemented on a very unusual phone a few months ago, a company called Zimbezi, and uh, they were pursuing this idea of uh, empowering communities through phones that allowed you to earn money by watching ads and participating in trials and all these other uh, activities. Uh, But one of the few ways that the phone was differentiated from a hardware perspective was through this feature, uh, enabling people who had the phone to accept payments. And uh, of course, Apple has been pursuing Apple Pay as a way for you to pay other vendors and merchants uh, with your iPhone. And this is the other end of the equation. So uh, if this uh, begins to take off, it really is another step toward the ultimate elimination of cash, uh, because there's already uh, many ways that you can uh, uh, pay for uh, goods and services at uh, at merchants. Uh, and this would be a way for you to accept uh, you know, reimbursements um, uh, in in person, just uh, just phone to phone. So it'll be interesting to see how the particulars work out. But uh, it uh, it's certainly phenomenal news for uh, small businesses, uh, solo uh, entrepreneurs, uh, people looking to accept. Uh, cash. It'll work with any contactless payment, by the way. So it doesn't have to be Apple Pay. It'll accept Google Pay. It'll accept uh, other other systems, uh, and uh, and so it uh, you know it, it could be very empowering. It could be uh, a, a real rebirth of the mini revolution that we saw with the Square Reader, and then that sort of subsided a bit as uh, the headphone jack went away and. Uh, the Bluetooth reader was was a bit too expensive, so so by integrating it, uh, you you can jumpstart that section of that sector of the economy again. And it it happens at I think a unique time where where we feel like the the virus may be subsiding at least for a time being as we head into the summer, and there'll probably be a lot more in person activities. They they did announce as part of this announcement that Stripe would be their first payment platform to offer tap to pay on iPhone to their business customers, including the Shopify point of sales app this spring. So to your point, Ross, it really could open up that solopreneur 
you know, market where maybe you're buying things at a, at a market. Oh, food, food, or, food, you know, uh, food trucks, uh, yeah. yard sales, uh, you know, all, all kinds of mobile, mobile sales activities, uh, um, solo practitioners who are, you know, attorneys maybe, or even plumbers, all, you know, handy, handymen, uh, yeah. or handy people, uh, all, all kinds of, uh, solo professionals. Well, and I, and I actually could see it being interesting around fundraising. So you think about the the Boy Scouts going door to door and selling mulch or Girl Scout cookies. This will now be the way. And they were big users of, you know, you know, of um, uh, being able to use your your card on your mobile phone. The the square the square, square reader. reader. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. The square reader. No worries. So, um, in the release, they also noted that privacy is fundamental in the design and development across all of Apple's payment features. Well, we saw some other announcements this week that uh, call some of that privacy commitment into uh, to question. At least Apple is responding to those uh, concerns. They plan to make updates to their AirTag uh, system to reduce Stalking. So one of the, the ways that people have found uh, one of the uh, perhaps creative uses of, of AirTag is that if you uh, link it to your phone and then you drop that AirTag into somebody's car or somebody's backpack without them knowing, you can track them without them knowing it. And so uh, Apple is making a number of software upgrades. Uh, one software upgrade will just alert you to the fact that uh, you could get in trouble and it is against the law to track somebody in many places without their permission. Uh, and also what uh, I think is a really interesting upcoming software update is that if it recognizes that there is a device tracking you, it will alert you on your phone. So. Uh, the, the screenshots that uh, that I've seen shared show that it says uh, unknown accessory detected. This item has been moving with you for a while. The owner can see its location. So it lets you know that potentially you uh, have an AirTag that isn't connected to your, your phone and to your account and it uh, may be tracking you. So I think that's a, a really interesting uh, addition to the, the service and clearly they're responding to some concerns about it uh, being used in nefarious ways. This product is uh, has been a very unusual product for Apple. Not only the price point, they hardly sell anything for un under $100. Uh, maybe the polishing cloth at, uh, at 20 bucks has, has been another uh, hot selling exception. But in fairness to Apple, this this was an issue with other tracking products long before AirTags uh, came uh, along. And uh, to Apple's credit, uh, it has done far more to try to protect against this kind of usage uh, than we have seen from other leading products. So the challenge here is uh, twofold. One, Apple scale and uh the number of air tags that will likely be out there uh, that uh, that that work with the massive installed base of, uh, of iPhones, uh, as opposed to previous solutions that had more limited uh, adoption, and Apple's reputation as a champion for privacy, where its platform is uh, is really designed, and a lot of its marketing is really designed around that. And here you have a product that can potentially 
track you, uh, not only a potential privacy threat, but uh, a, a potential physical safety threat. So uh, again, these, these just build upon some of the measures that we have uh, seen from Apple, reinforcing some of the technology solutions that uh, they have implemented in AirTags with uh, some some regulatory or informational deterrence. It, uh, it reminds me a bit of the kinds of warnings that you would see uh, in the uh, in, in, in the golden era, if you will, of uh, Napster, uh, where you know there, there would be these copyright warnings and and tell you that you know you 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 risk uh, uh, you know even today I think on on some of the you know uh, BitTorrent networks there there are sometimes warnings about uh, using using the tool to download or store copyrighted content. And some of the legal risks that uh, that come with that. So there's uh, an informational component uh, that uh, Apple's trying to employ here, although uh, I'm not sure how much of a deterrent that would be to someone who uh, had uh, this in mind for nefarious purposes. Yeah. So uh, I, I think all around a good update. Uh, sometimes you can perhaps dissuade people from making poor choices by informing them and then uh you know again by by using the technology of the mobile phone and recognizing that that something is tracking you i think is a, a really interesting um, approach and, and we have seen some of that within the app environment where it says hey this has been asking for your location do you want to continue to, to share it but to see it do it with a device that isn't uh, embedded in into the phone i think is really interesting this week, we had a couple of CEO transitions. The Peloton's CEO, John Foley, it announced that he would be stepping down to be replaced by former Spotify CFO, Barry McCarthy. And uh, they also announced that they were going to be cutting 2,800 jobs. As it always seems, Ross, this wasn't Apple news, but the uh, it, it seems to be at least temporarily, was made into Apple News as rumors started to circulate by some that uh, Peloton was ripe for takeover by Apple. And you actually saw the, the stock up pretty significantly there. Um, it's it trailed down significantly um, as we've kind of worked through some of its early demand and people are getting back out and, and not uh, quarantining like we were in the early months of the pandemic. And, and so demand for Peloton has started to, uh, to wane somewhat. Uh, but the, the rumors that Apple was going to acquire it uh, definitely caused the stock to move higher. Now, you're one that, uh, like, like others, say this was never going to happen. This was, there was no chance that Apple was ever going to acquire Peloton. Yeah, if you if you look at Apple's history, most of their acquisitions have been small, uh, smaller acquisitions, not real brand names. Uh, usually, filling in some <clears throat> uh, some component level technology like that tap to pay company that we mentioned earlier, uh, or Authentic, uh, which gave them the Touch ID feature on earlier iPhones. Uh, or the company that uh, developed the Connect 
uh, face tracking uh, technology uh, that uh, that was on the original Xbox and and which they um, and, uh, and which they oh, earlier Xbox uh, and which they, uh, they they brought to uh, to the platform with uh, with Face ID uh, for many years. For example, there were rumors that, or at least a lot of discussion, that Apple would acquire. Sonos because oh what a great fit it would be you know Apple has a franchise in music and these guys do uh, multi house music where Apple isn't uh, particularly strong uh, and that that never happened uh, you know in retrospect that might not have been uh, such a bad acquisition as it has come to light uh, the power of the uh, patent portfolio that Sonos uh, has access to probably. Uh, uh, increasing its value over over other companies doing uh, multi-room audio, uh, but uh, but I think with Peloton that the challenge was really the timing uh, and the assets of the company, which were these uh, high-end expensive bikes that, uh, much like the TV market, have a long replacement cycle, which isn't a good fit for uh, Apple's uh, device business model, which is generally updated. You know, products are generally updated every. 12 to uh, 24 months at, at the outset, uh, uh, outside. Uh, and then there were services. Uh, and, uh, and of course, uh, a lot of Peloton's decline was certainly due to recovery from the pandemic, uh, but I think was also certainly driven by the re- announcement of App, uh, Fitness Plus uh, and Apple getting into the subscription uh, fitness uh, service uh, market led by uh, Apple Watch and uh, allowing uh, that integration increasingly with a whole range of exercise uh, machines at, at gyms and and uh, other places. I think they will continue to build that out uh, much as they have built out um, the uh, the HomeKit uh, integration for uh, smartphone uh, for for home automation, so you know, I I will actually uh, as as I did with Sonos, go back a bit and uh, say, hey, uh, th- there might have been some parallels with Beats uh, back in the day, right? They they acquired devices uh, and they acquired a service. Uh, you know, Beats one became the uh, Apple Apple Music uh, service. Uh, but um, that was that was quite some time ago, and that was Apple's first modern uh, content service. And of course, today they are uh, much further down that line uh, and have gained a lot of experience and have driven so much, uh, starting to drive so much integration across those services with uh, uh, Apple One that. Uh, the level of integration required to bring in the Peloton service, and who knows how the financials of running that service compared to Fitness Plus, uh, likely just did, did not make sense. I, I do think it's an interesting business area for them, and I think uh, you know, for years, arguably a decade, we heard about Apple going into the TV business that never came to fruition. I think we're finally done talking about it, but we'll see if anybody ever spins up another rumor about Apple going into the TV business. And we'll probably hear about Apple going into the fitness equipment business uh, for, for, you know, for the years to come because that equipment market has changed significantly. You know, I think the, the days of, Hey, we're going to drop a bunch of weights at your, 
at your house and you're going to work out on your own accord and that's your home gym, those days are gone. Now it's you buy a relatively expensive piece of equipment often and then you have dedicated service, live live uh, classes or pre-recorded classes that you can join. And the service business is an Apple business. I think that is a place where they like to be and they need to think about where else those can, can go. So I think the fitness plus piece is, is partly there, but there are going to be times where you're going to need uh, equipment and maybe you want a tighter integration into that equipment. There's obviously other pieces of hardware that you could sell. The watch makes a lot of sense. Maybe a, a heart rate monitor, chest straps, those, those possibly could make uh, an interesting, uh, you know, use case scenario for them. Yeah, so al- I- already the Apple Watch is very good at picking up many different kinds of exercises. Right. Uh, you pair that with a couple of strategically placed sensors, and I'm sure it could pick up, you know, virtually anything. Uh, so, so the the machine uh, kind of becomes virtual and abstracted uh, through through the use of the sensors, and then, well. You know, if only uh, you could take that screen off the Peloton and and make it portable so that you could use it on a wide range of bikes. Uh, if only there were a product like that. Maybe if Apple had a product like that, just kind of a, a screen that you could move around uh, and interact with, that 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 might be a winning product. I'm I'm going to go on the record and say that would be a good product. So yeah, yeah. Well, and, and maybe they need a bigger screen though. I mean, that is what the Peloton does bring is a little bigger screen. And, and indeed, uh, you know, this week we saw uh, from Samsung uh, the largest uh, tablet that they've ever uh, produced, 14. Actually, that's not true, uh, but the longest one in, in quite some time, 14.6 inches. Uh, so uh, on, on their new Galaxy uh, tab uh, architecture. So, so yeah, those, uh, those screens are out there. Yeah, so, so maybe that's what the Apple's TV looks like, right? It's, uh, it's used... As part of their fitness plus uh, services, so we'll see how they how they play in this area. But I do think that they are going to run into a period where they want their services in more places, on more screens, on more devices. I, I mean, obviously, clearly, you already see them, you know, open up Apple Music to other devices, which which really prior to that was unheard of for their strategy. And so you, you can imagine them. Um, and maybe they just do the service business. Maybe they partner with a, a Peloton or other equipment manufacturers. And the, you know, the problem with the Peloton type model is that you're probably at best selling the equipment at close to you know cost, or or maybe you've got a single digit margin in there, and then you're you're hoping on revenue from continued services. So you set it up as as an annuity, right? It's the razor blade model to some extent. Uh, the other thing we saw Peloton cancel this week was their plans to build a factory in Ohio for $400 million. They, they bagged that as part of their cost-cutting measures. I think it, there's also a piece of that that Apple would not want. They don't do any of their own manufacturing. They, they have strong third-party partners for that. They don't have manufacturing workforce. And I, I think that that... Um, you know, pr- probably is where they want to stay. I do think there will be increasing demands for them to manufacture in the U.S., but I think they'll continue to, to do that through third parties. And they do do some computer manufacturing in, in the U.S. 
CrossFit. Yeah, I, I agree. And not only would they not necessarily want to take on that expense, but they also wouldn't want to necessarily take on the PR uh, position of saying, okay, we promised, you know, all these heartland jobs and now we're, we're not going to go through with it. So uh, that's yeah, a tough position too. Yeah, very, very good point. 2,000 jobs in Ohio that are not going to materialize now. So really good point. Uh, the other CEO departure that we saw this week came as part of the fallout from the NVIDIA SoftBank plans to uh, have NVIDIA acquire SoftBank's uh, ARM uh, business. And uh, there was just tremendous amount of, of regulatory scrutiny in advance of that, really from the very beginning, it was an uphill battle. And, uh, there, you know, there were, there were some clauses, I believe, in that where in, NVIDIA was to pay SoftBank if it fell through. So, um, but, you know, I think there was some some concerns from the very beginning. Not, not, not unusual breakup fee. Yeah, yeah not, not unusual. But I, I think you put those in place partly because you, there's some risk that the the merger won't go through. Uh, Arm CEO Simon Seagars resigns as as a po- as uh, part of that and was replaced by Arm IP Group President Renee Haas. Um, and SoftBank, as part of this, to to try to give a uh, cups half full approach, discussed a, a potential IPO for Arm in. 2023, March of 2023. So uh, in many ways, the, the businesses in and of themselves will continue to, to do well. Uh, I think one of the things that hurt this acquisition was the appreciation of in, NVIDIA stock. Um, you know, it made that ARM acquisition much more expensive as a result of that. And NVIDIA uh, continues to do quite well as the demand for chips and, and the expansion of the chip business uh, continues to to grow. Uh, the point about the Nvidia stock uh, appreciation uh, is is one that we don't uh, hear hear a lot about. Most of the uh, discussion around why the merger fell through comes from your earlier point around the many protests from ARM licensees, uh, such as uh, Qualcomm, uh, for example, was. Uh, uh, vehemently against the deal. Uh, worth noting, not all uh, ARM licensees were against the the deal. MediaTek, uh, for example, supported the um, the merger, uh, but uh, but the concerns are are not difficult to understand. Uh, ARM uh, has long been this uh, level playing field uh, vendor that uh, licenses on a range of terms to. Uh, essentially, uh, every company uh, making uh, you know consumer electronics, certainly smartphones, uh, in the uh, in the marketplace, uh, and uh, the idea that they would be under the control of one of their licensees, uh, even though one that is not uh, super active in uh, a lot of the major ARM markets today, such as uh, smartphones, for example, uh, was uh, was cause for concern. The argument for it uh, also somewhat has to do with NVIDIA's good fortunes, which is that uh, NVIDIA would be able to invest more in R&D to advance the ARM architecture. Uh, But ARM essentially has a monopoly uh, today when it comes to many different categories. It's it's, uh, looking to gain share 
in other categories, such as PCs, for example. Uh, but uh, uh, but today it's uh, it, it doesn't have much competition in its uh, many of its main markets. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see whether this has um, what long term impact, if any, it has on interest in RISC-V, uh, which is a open source uh, chip architecture that uh, not surprisingly started to gain a lot more attention uh, when this uh, merger was uh, was first uh, discussed as, as a possibility. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if uh, there continues to be interest in some adoption of that, or whether now that uh, we're back to the old world order, it is uh, not pursued nearly uh, as aggressively uh, and uh, pe- you know, manufacturers go back to what they're familiar with. Yeah, so certainly more to, to come on that front. Uh, in our final story of the week, Microsoft published a, uh, a blog post, I suppose, penned by Brad Smith, their president and vice chair this week. Uh, titled Adapting Ahead of Regulation, a principled approach to app stores, where they essentially reiterate some of their commitments to open app platforms, and they lay out 11 principles. I don't know if they've uh, really specified these exact 11 before. So they've they spelled to... out many of them, yeah. Yeah, they certainly have spelled out many of them um, to, to number them. And you know, I think we'll, we'll see this a lot more as they refer back to each one of these, but uh, definitely Ross, you are correct. They have uh, talked a lot about these and um, it, it certainly, you know, feels like they're trying to get in front of potential scrutiny that they themselves may see on recent acquisition uh, announcements that, that they've made. And I think that, that, you know, the tide has definitely shifted on big tech. We've talked about it for a number of uh, times over the last year or two. That it is, it is hard for these tech companies to make large acquisitions. I think increasingly it's going to be hard for them to make any acquisitions at all. But, uh, you know, Microsoft uh, recently announced the acquisition or the planned acquisition, I should say, of, of Activision Blizzard. And we saw in, in the wake of that a, a, a land grab for game developers. And uh, so in response to potential scrutiny... Uh, they they laid out these eleven principles. Yeah, so things come uh, around pretty much full circle on on this uh, podcast where we're kind of back talking about Apple, albeit uh, indirectly. Uh, and these principles are, uh, of course, a not too well veiled uh, shot across the uh, the bow of uh, of Apple. Uh, you know, essentially just. Uh, enumerating principles that uh, Apple does not <laughs> adhere to uh, today and which uh, which they have resisted. Uh, you know, regarding uh, Activision Blizzard, uh, really good uh, analysis by uh, Casey Newton in his uh, platformer uh, newsletter um, in, in the past uh, week or two around uh, some of the thinking, particularly in Europe, around uh, tech acquisitions. And if you look at Microsoft's acquisition of Activision Blizzard, according to traditional criteria, uh, it's, a, it's a no-brainer to pass. You know, Microsoft is uh, a number three vendor. They're not even dominant in terms of game sales 
on Windows, uh, you know, they're second place to uh, to Steam uh, and Valve on that platform. Uh, and uh, Sony is, is still ahead of them even after the acquisition. Uh, but uh, but then there is the school of thought that big tech getting any bigger is just inherently bad. Uh, and uh, we are, Sean, exactly to your point, seeing evidence of that uh, with a lot of the European scrutiny uh, around Facebook's acquisition of Giphy, uh, which is you know just a a GIF search uh, engine and aggregator that. Uh, uh, not not to diminish what what Giphy built and and the position that it achieved in the marketplace, uh, but it's it's you know Facebook or Meta acquiring uh, the company, probably not a game changer uh, for the uh, for for competitiveness uh, or is there a competitive GIF market? I don't know. Their 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 main competitor was also acquired uh, Tenor, I, I think, by Google. Uh, some time ago, but uh, but in any case, uh, Microsoft uh, traditionally has not really been much at the uh, much at the center of these kinds of discussions. Uh, also, seeing some resistance on uh, something we talked about in the podcast a while back, Amazon's acquisition of uh, MGM Studios uh, is attracting scrutiny as well. So uh, we'll we'll have to see, you know, where whereas again. Uh, the the content market, the studio market, uh, Amazon's acquisition of MGM would still leave them, of course, far far behind uh, Disney and uh, a combined Warner Media Discovery uh, mashup. So, uh, so we'll see uh, how that uh, regulatory climate uh, progresses, uh, both uh, both in Europe and here in the U.S. But uh, but the tides are. Uh, are definitely getting stronger against um, even a- acquisitions that would not uh, appear on the face to dramatically alter the competitive landscape. Yeah, and I think you've got two other stories playing out here. One is these large tech companies that are spitting off so much cash from advertising businesses in the case of Facebook and Google and, and arguably even Amazon, as they, uh, as we discussed in last week's podcast. But they, uh, so they've got to do something with that cash. And that's often been acquisitions. And it also changes the storyline for startups that have been hoping to sell to, uh, to the big tech companies. I mean, as, as you mentioned with the Facebook acquisition, that is just a wonderful opportunity if you're the developer there and you get the chance to sell to any of the big tech companies and whether they plan to invest more in the service, close it down, whatever, you're happy to to take your exit and move on to your next startup. So that could potentially change the startup landscape significantly as well. Absolutely. I also wonder if we'll perhaps consider this middle ground where it's looking at some of these companies as the conglomerates, you know, that, that they really are, whereas, you know, Meta acquiring Giphy, uh, that is clearly in, in the line of its mainstay business, right? Because these, uh, these mini movies, these, uh, these communication aids tie right into messaging, uh, which is, or, you know, group, uh, threads, uh, which are uh, part of uh, the key functionality of WhatsApp, Instagram, uh, you know, 
Meta's flagship uh, services, whereas something like Amazon's acquisition of MGM, uh, that is more of a secondary business for Amazon, the the content business. Uh, You could argue that Meta's acquisition of Oculus uh, many years ago might have been subject to to that level of scrutiny. So, um, you know, the to the the idea that all acquisitions are bad uh, is uh, is kind of uh, could 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 be very limiting um, in in some ways. Uh, but uh, but the idea that you evaluate it based on does it enable the acquiring company to make further progress into a new market? I'm not you know, coming out for or against that uh, line of reasoning, but but it does seem like a, a potential alternative to consider. Well, that's probably a great place to end this week's episode of Techspansive. Again, I'm Sean Duberback. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Duberback. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Thanks so much for listening.